City Cinema, a Gila Films podcast. I'm your host, David Weaver, and thank you for joining us after a brief one-week hiatus. Uh, we have something a little special for today's episode, the first of what I hope will be many guest episodes in which our, instead of doing a movie of the week review at the end, we will be joined by someone for an interview. And uh, before we get into that, though, just want to touch on a couple of the things. Um, first off, uh, some sad news. Uh, a couple very lovely, talented actresses passed away. Um, one not so recent, actually, uh, but news of it just kind of uh, came to came to the forefront, and that was uh, Sally Todd, um, who died last November, age eighty-eight. And Todd is best known for two things: one, she was a Playboy playmate, uh, February nineteen fifty-seven, and two, she was a scream queen in a trio of late nineteen fifties drive-in cult classics. She was. Uh, had a smaller supporting part in Roger Corman's uh, tongue-twistingly titled The Saga of the Viking Woman and Their Voyage to the Waters of the Great Sea Serpent, uh, which Mystery Science Theater uh, infamously riffed. Uh, she was in another MST3K rift horror film, a genre film, I should say. That was The Unearthly, starring John Carradine and Tor Johnson. She's one of uh, the, uh, the patients of John Carradine that he's experimenting on. Uh, but near and dear to my heart, and perhaps her best known of these roles, was in the 1958 film Frankenstein's Daughter, uh, where she uh, plays the ill-fated friend of uh, Sandra Knight's lead character. And as we've talked about before on this podcast, Frankenstein's Daughter also stars uh, the one and only Robert Dix, who appeared in The Last Frankenstein. Um, but that was actually the first movie I saw Sally Todd in, um, and I th- think Sandra Knight actually now might be the only uh, remaining living cast member from that film, at least uh, uh, outside of any extras. But uh, Todd also had some small, small parts in films like G.I. Blues with Elvis Presley and The Revolt of uh, Mamie Stover with Jane Russell. But uh, yeah, just that saw that today. Um, and I think actually that news just came out within the last few days that she she died in uh, November in France. She was in. Also, we uh, lost actress Gail Honeycutt, age 80. Honeycutt came on the scene in the uh, mid-60s. She made her film debut in Roger Corman's biker flick The Wild Angels, but her next feature film role was a lead opposite uh, George Pappard in the Universal Pictures private eye movie PJ. And uh, she turned up in leading roles in uh, such well-remembered movies as uh, Marlowe with James Garner, um, and which she played the sister of... Uh, the older sister of Sharon Farrell's character. Sharon Farrell just passed away recently, too. We talked about that. Uh, but that is a, uh, a film based on uh, the works of uh, Raymond Chandler, his uh, Philip Marlowe uh, private eye stories. She also starred in the uh, classic horror film The Legend of Hell, Hell House with Roddy McDowell. She was in uh, the suspense uh, spy flick Scorpio with Burt Lancaster and Elaine Delon. And she starred in Eye of the Cat, which is a really great uh, late 60s suspense horror movie, co-starring Michael Sarazen and Eleanor Parker, which I highly recommend. And for a while, she was married to uh, the British actor David Hemmings, who uh, at that time was coming off his uh, success in the uh, acclaimed movie Blow Up. 
And Hemmings and uh, Hanukkah actually starred together in a couple movies, uh, Voices and Fragment of Fear. And um, Hemmings actually even directed uh, Hanukkah in a film titled Running Scared, uh, not the Billy Crystal movie. But uh, because of their uh, marriage, uh, Hanukkah ended up doing a lot of work over in England. Even after their divorce, she continued to do a lot of work over there. Um, she was in a couple acclaimed miniseries, uh, The Golden Bowl and Fall of Eagles. Um, and she played the uh, famous Arthur Conan Doyle uh, character of Irene Adler in the Jeremy Brett TV show, The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. But she also worked still in the States. Um, she was in the last three seasons of Dallas playing uh, J.R. Ewing's former lover, Vanessa Beaumont. But um, just someone who always really kind of uh, warmed up the screen and an absolutely beautiful woman, but also, like I said, a very, a very talented actress, a very good presence to have on hand. Uh, so sorry to see her pass on. Now, uh, if you were following us on Facebook when we were on Hades, I mentioned that there would be something very interesting of uh, local interest that I'd be talking about in this episode. And that is that uh, I was at an estate sale, garage sale actually, uh, a couple weeks ago. And I went to this uh, garage sale because they advertised that they had a bunch of film prints for sale. Um, and I could see pictures of it. It was like this big rack full of uh, what looked to be a 16 millimeter prints. So I show up to the sale and um, having no idea like if other people from far away have going to heard about the sale and be there, or if it's just going to be some kind of isolated thing because it was only posted on Craigslist. And I got there, and there's only a couple of people there. No one was really paying attention to the prints. I start looking at the labels on the cans, and they were uh, discarded, basically, from uh, local educational institutions. So I start opening them up. Um, I can see that from the titles that they're uh, educational films, industrial films, some cartoons that would have been uh, sent to schools. And unfortunately, you know, case after case, um, just caked in mold inside. Like they were, they were in a garage, um, and I don't know how long they had been there, but just one after the other. Just, it, and I don't mean just a little mold. I mean just irredeemable, irredeemably uh, uh, caked in mold. Some of them were in metal cases, and those were like rusted shut. Um, so I was basically kind of was going to write off the whole experience. Um, just to start looking around the sales, see if there's anything else of interest, and decided finally to go back and look one more time. And I noticed this larger case. Most of the cases um, that were there were uh, the smaller, the smaller real cases. But they did have a, uh, a few 12-inch uh, cases, and one of them looked a little cleaner. So I picked it up off the top shelf, and I saw that on it it was labeled Mohawk Carpet Special Part 2. Now, um, as we've talked about, this podcast is called Carpet City Cinema because I am from and still live in Amsterdam, New York, which was formerly the carpet, uh, known as Carpet City or Rug City because it used to produce in the heydays of the mills more carpets and rugs than any other city in the country. And uh, among the companies, the factories, the businesses that were established here uh, was Mohawk Carpet. And uh, they eventually uh, rolled into uh, another company, evolved into a company now known as Mohawk Industries, which uh, some time ago left this area. They're now actually based out of Georgia. But um, you know, a lot of the old mill buildings still stand around here. And, um, you know, it's just really interesting uh, that the, I've always been a fan of local history, but it's really interesting the relationship between uh, the city's history and the uh, life and death, the, uh, the presence and exodus of the carpet mills. Um, so, I wasn't really sure what this was. Um, I kind of in my head a couple of things popped in. One, it could just be some kind of 
a promotional film just showing new product, but I kind of doubted that because I was like, well, it's part two and it's a a 12-inch canister, which means it's probably like, uh, you know, 45, between 30 and 45 minute program inside. Uh, or it could be some kind of maybe special that they produced, you know. Um, companies back in the day uh, would actually uh, produce their own TV shows and specials. You may have heard of things like General Electric Theater. Uh, so obviously I was extremely excited about it. And the first thing to do was to pop open the can. And very fortunately, it was pristine. It was like the one the one print that was clean. But I did notice on the label it said part two. And I was like, oh, man. So now I'm going to have to go through all these reels. But really didn't even have to do that. I just have to look up. And hanging on a nail on the wall of this uh, garage was a reel that was not in a case. And yes, it was part one. So that was incredibly exciting. Um, so I actually ended up going through every single uh, canister pretty much. And yes, by the time I was done, my hands were caked in mold and liquefied rust. did manage to find a couple other things of interest, not of a local interest. I uh, found a couple of uh, Christmas and Halloween specials that uh, I'm hoping to get uh, scanned. But the big, the big win of the day was obviously this Mohawk carpet special. And uh, went home and just tried to dig in, do some research. Couldn't find a lot on my own, but I posted about it um, in some different places. And I've got to get a big shout out to a, uh, a Facebook acquaintance of mine named Charles Devlin, who's very active in some of the film groups, uh, who uh, sent me a link which ended up explaining a lot of the, uh, of the history of what exactly this was. So... Yeah, Mohawk Carpets did make a couple forays into television. And the first one was in uh, 1949, where they actually produced a 15-minute TV show called uh, Mohawk Showroom. Um, and yes, back in the days, they actually did have 15-minute TV and radio shows. And this ran from 1949 to 1951. And it was basically a, a short musical program, uh, with the hosts being two singers, uh, Morton Downey and Roberta Quinlan. And uh, Downey left at some point during '49. Um, and it was just Quinlan uh, after that. And it would be on uh, five weekdays, Monday through Friday. Eventually dropped down to just Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And I, I guess I, I couldn't find out why, but it went off the air in 51. And there was also a radio version produced. But then it turned out that uh, starting in 1960, Mohawk Carpus decided to get back in the game by producing uh, a holiday special. For uh, Thanksgiving 1960, they produced an NBC color special titled No Place Like Home. And the guest cast in that included uh, Academy Award-winning actor Jose Ferrer, who uh, won the Best Actor Oscar for Sean Eddie Bergerac, singer Rosemary Clooney, which uh, at that time she was, I believe, married to Ferrer. And uh, if, you, if you don't know, that's George Clooney's aunt, uh, Dick Van Dyke and Carol Burnett. And they um, came back again in 1961 with another Thanksgiving special uh, titled Home for the Holidays. They had on that uh, Gordon McRae, the star of the... Um, uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein films, uh, Oklahoma and Carousel. And uh, then in 1962, uh, they did a special with Pat Boone, Patty Page, and uh, Phil Harris. Now, this information that uh, Charles Devlin shared with me came from a publication called Sponsor, the weekly magazine radio TV advertisers use. And this was the February 4th, 1963 issue. And in this issue, they are talking about the uh, next upcoming uh, Mohawk special, which was going to be for Easter of that year following the three Thanksgiving specials. And in the article, it mentions that it's going to be a color special and it, uh, it's going to feature Fred Waring and his Pennsylvanians, which was a popular uh, singing group back in the day. Now, I don't know if these specials continued after the Easter 63 one, because that's the latest I could find out about these. 
Um, I, I have rolled off a little bit of the print to examine it to see if I could tell which of these specials it might be or if it was even a different one that wasn't mentioned in this uh, publication. Uh, but um, I couldn't just because I don't really, I'm not really set up to really examine the film that, that well. Um, I could tell that it was black and white, which is common, you know, to the, even though these uh, television programs and specials back then were being produced in color. It was still during a time when a lot of people had black and white sets, so they would still make a lot of black and white prints. I uh, I reached out, though, to uh, Mohawk Industries to uh, let them know about the find and ask them if they had any knowledge about the history of these programs or if they'd even retained any of the uh, elements of these programs. And um, they were very kind, got right back to me, uh, were uh, definitely uh, stoked about uh having discovered this, but did sadly inform me that they had, they had nothing, uh, on any of these old, uh, TV productions that basically, um, any of that stuff would have been, uh, probably discarded or dealt with a long time ago before the company evolved into its current state. Um, at some point, uh, the company on its way from basically long story short, on its way from Amsterdam to, uh, uh, Georgia, it, it ended up in Virginia. And so the person who wrote me back from Mohawk Industries said that when the company made the move to Virginia, um, they probably, if they didn't take stuff with them, which is unlikely, they just probably got rid of it out of out of uh, New York State. And there's a couple uh, film archives. You can do online searches of what they carry, like the, um, uh, the Library of Congress, uh, the Canada Film Archive, the UCLA Film Archive, um, I, I didn't have any hopes that I would find anything of this nature in that, those archives, uh, but I, uh, and, and the, true to form, yeah, nothing nothing turned up. It is very possible without like overstating it, that this could be a situation where this print could be the only print. I don't know. Um, nothing nothing uh, came up anywhere online. I did find an episode of uh, the Mohawk Showroom program. Um, someone had transferred a kinescope of it and uploaded it to YouTube, which was pretty exciting. But yeah, none of these specials I could find anywhere. So the plan is I uh, I know someone who can do some 16mm scans for me. He's done some already. Um, and I'm hoping that he'll be willing to tackle this. Um, they're, both reels are, like I said, they, they didn't have any of the mold issues that the other ones had at that sale. But uh, one of them does look a little dirty, like it might need some cleaning. If it if if it does need anything kind of a little more aggressive in terms of treatment, that's going to make this process take a little bit longer. But if it's just a matter of just cleaning off like the outside of the 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 top layer of reel, the outer layer of the reel, and then running it through a scanner, um, we could find out pretty soon what this is. And definitely would love to, especially if it's like a holiday special and if there's enough of a local connection, maybe look into screening it locally. So really exciting find. Another um, a really cool thing that we can. Uh, um, get into, uh, add to the, uh, restoration docket, so to speak. And, um, something pretty easy to do too. You know, it's, this is something, like I said, we just get a quick scan of it, high def scan of it. And, um, you know, maybe down the road, if we feel necessary, we can do a, a, a more extensive restoration, but we don't have to do something uh, of that, that scope right now. All right. So we're going to go right into this interview. This interview is with our very first guest, none other than the one, the only Jay Leonard. Yes. Producer of The Last Frankenstein, um, who I've uh, referenced in many episodes, and a f- director in his own right. He has directed and written a number of feature films, um, as we've discussed before. Uh, his current movie, Break Glass, is uh, touring the film festival circuit. It stars uh, Jeffrey Otto, Keely Sheridan, and also has Jorge 
Luna, all from The Last Frankenstein. It just won the Best Audience Award at the Buffalo Dreams Film Festival. Congratulations to them for that. And still has some festival runs coming up. But uh, his prior film before that, Middletown, uh, which uh, which also uh, Jeffrey Anna appeared in, that won Best Film at the uh, Coney Island Film Festival. So he just it's great to see the success Jay's been having and that you know his many years of hard work on his craft are paying off. And um, yeah, it was great to, you know, obviously I, I talk with Jay all the time. We have really long conversations about everything from uh, uh, Star Wars to um, uh, the uh, the decay and decline of the uh, DC Universe uh, film uh, kingdom. But uh, it was good just to kind of have like uh, an actual kind of like an interview with him, a sit down with him. So I hope you'll enjoy this. Oh, and I almost forgot uh, a, a disclaimer. Uh, when you listen to this interview, uh, please excuse the less than ideal audio quality on my half of the conversation. I use this same mic I'm using to talk to you right now, but somehow it sounds like an AM radio channel whenever I talk. Uh, fortunately, the most of the talking and most of the interesting stuff is coming from Jay's crisp audio. So uh, we will make sure to rectify that before we do another one of these uh, interviews. But uh, So please excuse that uh, subpar audio on my half of the conversation. So here's the interview with Jay Leonard, filmmaker. It looked right. good to me. I don't know. Yeah. All right. So, uh, yeah, this is like the 12th time we've tried doing this, I guess. <laughs> I guess. I like talking to you, though, so it's great. Oh, shucks. Yeah, for anybody listening, uh, we completely recorded an interview and then realized I had muckety-mucked up the audio on my end. So we are, we're doing it like it was never done before, though, I think. You know... It's a good thing it was me, and it wasn't like you were speaking to uh, some high-profile muck. Corman? Muck. Ro- Corman? Bobby, Bob, uh, Bobber, Bob, Roger, Dodger, Corman himself. Um, you weren't talking to Raj, and mm-hmm. it was a one-shot deal. It was me. I'm just some jack alone that you can call <laughs> anytime. Did you see he was in the Criterion closet, like yesterday no. or the day before? Oh, I think I got like an alert. Because I have like Google alerts set up with his name, yeah, so I yeah. think maybe I saw that. Was that yesterday? I don't know who the hell. He knows. had like like I don't I forget it was like a Kurosawa or something in his in his hands. Ninety seven this year, still wow. going strong. Wow. I I cold called his wife one time. I told you that story. I think. You did. Yes. Yes. I was just looking for film jobs way fifteen twenty years ago, and I was like, I'll just call up uh, New Horizons, whatever it was back then, and. Someone answered the phone saying they were Julie, and I was like, I know that voice from all the documentaries. That's Julie Corman. Crazy. And they had no work because they were shooting in another country. So. Yeah, they're, they're always in, like, Romania. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the Philippines, the new Philippines. <laughs> you know, it, you take, like, like the great one, Wayne Gretzky once said, you miss 100% of the shots that you don't take, sir. So <laughs> I think it's good for you that you did that. I thought the great one was Jackie Gleason. Like the great one Jackie Gleason <laughs> said, my One liver hurts. Days. Oh, right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, people who have been listening to this podcast know are you. Are confused. Think, they're confused yes, right now. <laughs> Why are there two voices? What the hell is going on? There has been no references to anyone uh, in, in a movie shot in 1956. <laughs> uh, listen, I did a deep rising, uh, my last episode, Mr. Um, unbelievable. So, yeah. That was Treat Williams' last last starring role in a feature film. Rest in peace. Yeah, yeah R.I.P. But yeah, this is our first guest episode, as I so cleverly are calling these. 
uh, I like the guesticle, but I get uh, it. <laughs> well, you both come in pairs, but um, sure, we'll have to do another one. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, this is Jay Leonard. We're talking to filmmaker extraordinaire, uh, mentor of Mohawk Valley movie making. Oh right, um, right, right. And as listeners of this podcast know, he is the producer of Hilo Films' debut feature film, The Last Frankenstein. Also a director in his own right. Jay, give us this is speed dating. Give us your story. My story? I was born in a bayou in 1911. <laughs> um, Dave, I think you just did it. Uh, okay. Yeah, born yeah, and... Thanks for joining us. Thanks for... Thanks for... Uh, yeah. <laughs> Everybody have a good night, and uh, we'll talk soon. Um, I was, yeah, I was born and raised here in, this, in Amsterdam, uh, New York, the same place uh, that you were. Um, very, very similar... Uh, Similar situation, uh, fell in love with movies really early, uh, you know, made a bunch of, of uh, crazy little movies with my friends growing up and, and wanted to wanted to just keep doing this. So that's what I've been doing over the last several years. Uh, actually, the shooting, the shooting, the date and the shooting script of the first thing we, we had was 2004. So we were coming up on 20 years of, wow. of senseless shootings. Um, <laughs> Back when I was just an actor. Your, you were yeah, your... you were just an actor in a Star Trek uh, uniform, humping a paper copy. A That's paper. right, and yeah. w- with with a fan, dude. It's I still will sometimes look at that. So okay, I was on a train in uh, was it October, November, November of last year. I had to go to Cleveland for work, and I and I took the Amtrak, and it was great. Like I had I had a little room, like a private room on the train and stuff like that. So you know, I'm all bougie. I got my computer and everything, and I'm in my little private room, and I'm thinking, this is not the worst way to travel. Now, granted, I felt like Abraham Lincoln, but whatever. <laughs> so I'm in my room, and I'm eating this horrible microwave dinner that they bring you. Um, and uh, get on my laptop, and lo and behold, I'm at the end of the train with no Wi-Fi for nine—a nine-hour overnight trip. Nice. Yikes. So all I have—I had one hard drive in my backpack, and on that hard drive was a copy of Failure Fantasy, our first effort, uh, mm-hmm. back from mm-hmm. t- 2005 or whenever we shot— we started to shoot, and uh, I watched it, and it was bad. <laughs> but I laughed out loud when I saw this dream sequence of you, glorious chops, uh, uh, a fan just off, just out of uh, frame, blowing papers into your face, and you humping a, uh, a printer, and just thinking, why would he ever want to be involved with me <laughs> after this day? But it was great. <laughs> And that was the first of how many feature films are you up to now? The newest, the one we've been talking about lately uh, on the on the podcast, Break Glass. What number is that? Uh, well, if you count the late term abortion of the first movie, <laughs> uh, the colossal disappointment of film school of the second film, uh, this w- if you count those, this would be number six. And you write all your films, just so everyone knows. Correct? I you're do. A, you're a writer director. I'm a writer director. I'm an editor. Uh, I'm a sound mixer. Um, I've, I've taken on more every time just because nobody wants to do it for me. So I just have to do it. Until you met me, you were a cinematographer too. That's true. That's true. And you came on in our first, our first, our first collab, uh, mm-hmm. crew collab, as the kids say together, uh, Death Before Discomfort that we shot way back in 2014. Right before, that was right while I was writing The Last Frankenstein. Yep. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, talk to me about how you you're taking a, taking a step back and looking at the progression of these films. 
and I know you, you can be a little hard on yourself sometimes, Jay, if I may say so, but how do you see, what do you see when you look at the trajectory of the films? What do you see in terms of growth or change or things that you feel have gotten better or easier maybe, just maybe easier just by virtue of the experience you've had? What do you see when you look at like this as a, as a graph from, from film one to film six? Well, as I shuffle towards the grave, um, <laughs> in this long procession that it has been, this pride-swallowing siege that is independent, no-budget filmmaking. Um, I see an older, fatter, out of more out of shape, generally uh, dis more disenfranchised man than back in 2005. Um, but I generally, I about the fatter part. Uh, <laughs> thank you, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, Growth in the I was too busy being clever to understand the question. So uh, uh, growth in the uh, in the overall trajectory of my oeuvre is what you're asking. Well, I, I guess like because I guess we have, you know, we've talked about this before. You're never happy with the film you make. God, you're no. always finding faults with it. Me? But the, no, like every. Oh, like oh, the you, we like, got it. Oh yeah. oh yeah, no, I hate your films. No, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Like I, I, whenever I watch the Last Frankenstein, I just see everything wrong. I know it's the same way, and and that's a common thing, you know, for filmmakers and actors and actresses. But I guess you have an idea. Uh, every time you go into a film, you have an idea of how you want it to turn out, and then there is the reality of what happens. Do you feel, as you've gone through these films over the years, that you are getting closer, at least? to realizing what you set out to make? Does it does it get closer to the vision you had as you gain experience, as you bring other people on board to kind of take off your shoulders some of the other technical responsibilities? Do you find you're getting closer to achieving what you want of each script? Yeah. Um, I, think that, I think that over the course of particularly the last three or four movies, I think that... I started off having no idea what that was, except knowing that, like, I wrote this story and I wanted to see this story on a screen. And then kind of learning, kind of having these moments on each of those movies that I recognized as important moments that I had to have to grow. Like those, okay, so the first time, so when you and I worked together on Death Before Discomfort, I recognize, you said this thing to me we were trying to figure out how to shoot this one particular scene and I was going at it like, you know, with reckless abandon and we were standing in this diner, time was ticking, everything was falling apart, storyboards were garbage and I'm like, well, we just do this and we'll do this and we'll do this and I remember you like looking at me and saying, slow down. What do you want to do? And that changed so much in my life, not just in filmmaking, but in my life because I realized that up until that moment, I was so desperate. I was like a drowning person and I was just clinging on to people to try to get air, not realizing I was drowning them too. In, in my fight for survival, I was making poor decisions based on time and based on, you know, needing the moment and not really, and doing everybody that was around me and helping me a disservice by doing that. So I think that was kind of like the first time I realized that, oh, this is a growth experience. This isn't a rush to the finish line situation. And this is also not a, you're ever going to get this right thing. It's, it's a collection of moments that, that allow you to grow as a person and as a filmmaker and, and, and stuff like that. So 
I think since that moment, I've had a lot of those moments on a set where I realized, oh, this is a moment here where I get to do exactly what I want to do. And I can craft this performance because I don't have the weight of being a DP or hanging over me any longer or watching sound levels or worrying about how much time is left on a location. Mm -hmm. So I, I've been able to get closer to the story or the feeling that I want to get. And the talent level has is so strong with the pictures that we've made that that has made it very easy for me. That has made it easier for me to get there too. I don't think I'm ever going to have like a one-to-one -one translation. And I think that that's part of the problem with, you know, no budget filmmaking is that you just don't have time to, to do it. You don't have the luxury of a 30 day shoot to really slow down to a crawl, to really wait for the perfect moment, to really like make everyone as comfortable as possible and, and do, you know, six takes on something or eight takes, 10 takes on something just to find it and to find the nuance and every little blink. But I think that that's good, you know, because it, it keeps you moving. And I think ultimately that's the most important thing. That was a really long winded answer. And I apologize. <laughs> That's what the uh, snip tools for Jay. Thank but you, thanks, sir. Thanks for telling us all that. So let me um, let me let me give you a clean edit point. <laughs> yes. Um. So just we we actually talked about this in the uh, in the OG uh, recording of this interview. Let's not uh, talk about that. The pilot. Um. <laughs> the, the cage. Proof but, concept. Uh, um. Explain no budget filmmaking so people can have some kind of context because I you and I joke about this. I remember. Uh, Someone was talking about one of our films one time and about how long it was taking for us to do post-production. And they, they made the comment, yeah, I don't get it, man. The Avengers films, that only took like a year to make. So uh, <laughs> explain to someone, to, to the audience, exactly how no budget our no budget films are. Uh, no budget. Um, you know, nothing. Um, I, I'm very candid in talking about budget for, for the movies. You know, list, go listen to uh, Making Movies is Hard. Uh, that podcast and listen to every time the two hosts ask the guest filmmaker what their budget is and listen to them all falter and gasp and stammer and try not to say it because to them the most important thing is the sale. I don't even think about that because it's so far out of our realm of possibility <laughs> that I will tell you exactly. Death Before Discomfort was shade over 600 bucks. Um, the other one I, I think which was the name of the movie, uh, I think was right in that same ballpark. Middletown cost $961 to make, and Break Glass was 1800 bucks and some loose change. So absolutely nothing. Um, in the grand scheme of things, that's not even a bagel budget for a, a, a quote-unquote real movie for one day. Um, and that's it. And that's the most important thing to me is to not be encumbered by... Uh, Expectation by money and expectation and 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 I guess uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, I guess the convenience and luxury. Mm -hmm. I, I I like to make movies for nothing. I, I like I like to take nothing and make something of it. I I like to boil things down to their like to the absolute. I like to render the fat out of everything mm -hmm. and just say like, hey, we don't need a DIT and we don't need three you know, PAs and I was reading a board the other day, a Reddit of the filmmaker board on Reddit the other day, and it was about um, the the post was who handles the walkies on your set. On the last <laughs> show I was at, we had a de a dedicated walkie PA, <laughs> and I'm just like, holy shit, guys! <laughs> you hired a kid 
and even if you paid the minimum, you gave someone money to put walkie-talkies in a box and then hold that box? Like, come on. It's just, it's just, it's, it's just gluttony to the point of, uh, it's just disgusting. Um, so I don't like to do stuff like that. And, and, and I'm, a, I'm a big fan of like punk rock, no budget, you know, that's my thing. The old Bombac, the Duplass Brothers, uh, you know, the old Dogma 95 stuff, uh, just that kind of stuff. That's my deal. But part, and part of the reason you've been able to execute that successfully is that you kind of have like, among your cast and crew, it's, it's almost like a communal vision of this. There's kind of an agreement among you all of executing the films this way. I mean, can you talk a little bit about how you're able to bring other people on board with that same kind of mindset or, and, and a little bit maybe also about just kind of the same team? Because you, you work with a lot of the same people on the movies, uh, especially the last few, the same cinematographer, Justin Wambach, producer Sean Barnes, and Susanna Bourne. So can you talk a little bit about how you've been able to bring other people, find people with that like mindset? Um, and how important that is, too, especially since we live in an area where there is no, like, significant filmmaking enterprise. Uh, well, yeah, you accomplish that by shamelessly begging. Uh, I, I'm at a point right now where I'm about to hand off this script, and it's so uh, scary for me to do because I feel like that's where the ask is. It's, hey, I've spent a bunch of time writing this thing, uh, and this thing means the world to me, and I, I want you to be a part of this. And it doesn't start today and end when we're done shooting. This is now a part of you for the conceivable future and i i love you and i adore your talent and and you know i really give them all the possible praise and kudos i can and really stay honest and transparent and then they come to work mm -hmm. and that's how we treat it uh you know we're kind of rigid for a no budget production company I think like the only way to make these things is to do it very rigidly, to treat it like a real show, to to have a a very rigid shoot schedule and an intense pre-production period where, you know, you walk into every day with a very clear shot list, a very clear goal, a day to make, um, call sheets, uh, uh, stripe boards. I mean, like I, I really try to treat it as much like a, a professional environment as I can because I feel like that helps the no budget the no budget uh, filmmaker, you know, it, it helps to stay organized and to keep everybody on board. Um, but, but I think like once we started building out this, this like tribe of people, this, 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 this uh, group, this gang of ours, um, I think that we all just like to be around each other for the most yeah. part. I think that we're, we're friends and, um, and it's through creativity. Uh, we don't live in a place that's very, that that has that sort of filmmaking enterprise infrastructure that has that has a lot of those things. We we don't have a place to rent a picture car, and if you need a right. C stand, then you're kind of screwed if you don't have time to get it shipped to you. You know, that's what we live in. We don't live in Los Angeles, but we don't live in Atlanta or Austin either. Uh, we are pretty far off the beaten path. So I think all I've tried to do is kind of blow this dog whistle over the last bunch of years to try to attract as many people who have that kind of feeling that I do and you being one of them you know having sort of the, the love to 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 create and to make things and the love for film not in a content creator shitty way but like a sorry content creators but like a <laughs> like a, well, a real respect for the craft of, of making a movie and telling a story and 
and I think like, you know, you, you get those people and then it, it's just, it's just great to find your people, you know? Mm-hmm. And so that's what we do to, to make, to make these things. I think I answered your question. I think so. Yeah. You were like, Hey, come on here and talk a lot. Cause I don't <laughs> want to, I've been talking to myself for the last 15 episodes and have two cups of coffee and let's, yeah. 24 episodes, buddy. This is number 25. I can't believe counting. it. 25. I know. Six you, months. You're really killing it, man. Um, there, there's kind of a sense, I think, you would agree that things really kind of went to a new level with your, with the lat, not the film that's just out, but the one prior to that, Middletown, your fifth film, that that kind of was a certain kind of, uh, all these efforts and these assembling of this team and this coming together, this mindset really kind of elevated to a new plane with Middletown. I mean, would you agree with that? And if so, how, did, how do you feel that came about and, and worked out so well? Well, that film, th- for people who don't know, it went on to win Best Picture at the Coney, what, what? Coney Island Film Festival. Who? Oh. Yeah, had a really good run on the film festival circuit. It did. Even if it was the, the dark year. Of, it of, was the dark year. The vid. It, it was the vid year. Uh, yeah. You know, dude, I, honestly, I think it all, that all started with Last Frankenstein. Um, Last oh, Frankenstein was the Thank first. It, it, but for real, I, we went from Death for Discomfort to, to uh, D- Death for Discomfort. We post. We were in post when you started shooting Last Frankenstein. Yeah. Um, And while we were kind of, while I was kind of posting Death for Discomfort, I was helping you in pre-production and stuff with uh, with Frankenstein. And 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 I think that was the first time where I was like, all right, holy shit, we're there's a little bit of money here, not a lot, but like a a lot for us at the time. Which you know, and again, in the grand schemes, uh, scheme of things, I don't want anybody to think that there was a lot of money for Last Frankenstein. It was a hilariously, insipidly low amount of money, but. The fact that you were there and you were motivated and you had a passion for this. And that's when I started to realize, like, okay, it doesn't just have to be me screaming into a void anymore. Now I got a partner. I got another guy. A friend of mine is very, very much into this, and he's all the way invested. And he's so invested that he's making his own feature. And now we're going to be two filmmakers from the same area. And that was, like, that was another big turning point, you know? Um, and then as we've kind of built the, the crew, I, I don't know. I really kind of... F- Felt, I really kind of felt like uh, we. I've learned something on every film, um, you know, and and I, I really felt like a growth in every one of them. As stupid as that sounds, as pretentious as it sounds, I just feel like if you if you do anything long enough, um, you will get better at it. <laughs> Unless yeah. you know you have a profound disability, I think you will just get better. You just have, to, and I think that's the thing. If you stick around long enough, there's people. People are, are you know, recently like kind of like, oh, hey man, that's great. You know, you got into this festival. You're doing this, blah blah blah. I'm like, yeah, I'm just because I'm I'm just not leaving. I'm just the last <laughs> guy at the party. You know, we worked with a lot of people on a lot on, on over the course of six films that don't do this anymore, and it's right. because they wanted to go on and have a life and not worry about this shit. And uh, I just have chosen to remain at the party. So mm-hmm. I think that's really the secret for all anybody who's interested in making films. Um, you just have to be stubborn about uh, having a life. Don't do that. Just. Just do this, and eventually you too will uh, win Best Picture at Coney Island <laughs> International Film Festival. <laughs> and also, just to kind of reinforce the whole budget thing, because I'm always blunt about this too, is like we work full time jobs. Yeah, yeah. This, is, this is not this is our full time passion. It's what we'd love to do for a living, but this is unfortunately not. You know, you and I both have 
have uh, regular uh, day jobs that we have to go to and make this happen around that. Can you talk a little bit about that and the balance of that? And also, you know, you have, unlike me, you have a child. Uh, I just have a cat. Uh, I so, had a couple of those too. You, you, yeah, you, yeah, you, you trying to show off? Yeah, I yo, got two yo. cats too, Dave. Shout out to Antoine and Dennis. Yes, sir. Uh, Fat Tony uh, Petrosino. What? <laughs> yeah, man, so, it's all balance. You know this. We talk about this all the time. It's just balance. It's it's trying to find the the will to go on in spite of this, you know, this uh, crushing existence. No, um, dude, it's balance. It's it's having a full time job is a full time job, and having a family is a full time job. But the pay is way better, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and then trying to shoehorn in this thing that is this is very much this necessity. That's the shit. And this is going to sound pretentious as well, but like this is just the reality of it. There are people who want to make movies. And then there are people that need to make movies. Mm-hmm. And I don't like to identify myself as one who needs to, but I, I am the latter. I, if I am not working on something, writing something, cutting something, working toward being on set again, I am, in a, I am not a good person to be around, as mm-hmm. can be attested by my partner. She's been dealing with me for a very long time and has seen me kind of in the doldrums in between projects when there's no momentum and it's hard, you know? Um, So it's balance and it's trying to figure out when you're going to have time to do this. And it's just, there's no way, there's no shortcuts and there's no like, you know, there's no uh, tricks. It's just, you got to not sleep as much as much as you'd like to. You have to write when the muse tells you to write. Um, or, you know, if you're one of these people that can, like, set a clock and write in the morning, whatever you're into. But, like, you have to put the work in um, because if you don't, then uh, it's not going to happen. And it's and, and that's all there is to it. And I'm not saying this from as a guy who feels like, you know, he's going to Sundance and is playing in Cannes this year. That is not me and by any stretch. But I am I have come to a point in my life at my age and in my in my um skill level and stuff like that, where I'm defining my own success. And I feel like this is what success is like for me, just for me, not for anybody else, not for people who, who are 22 and they've got an incredible script and they're going to go make the next Sundance hit and they're going to get distribution and they're going to open up a studio and all that stuff. I'll be in awe of those people forever and ever and ever. I just know that's never going to be me. This is my success. I have a film right now that's in festivals. I just got an email before we jumped on that um, they found a home for us uh, at uh, in in Keene at a festival at Monif uh, on the 29th of September. Um, we're going to be screening, awesome. and, and we weren't sure that we were going to be screening because they had limited screening spaces. But you know, to me, at success, um, our our film's going out to North Hollywood Film Festival uh, at the end of September. That's success. It's success to have a film festival movie. Um, and so that's what the that's what this the the juice at the end of the squeeze of finding balance is about for me. Well, yeah, because I think we talked too about how we're just at the point in our lives because we're we're about you're you're a couple years older than me. We're we're middle aged men. We're men of a certain age, as they say. Yes, yes. We're like Ray um, Romano and Scott Bakula on a podcast. <laughs> uh, but it's like we can't not do it. You know, it's and yeah. uh, and you know it's it's interesting because yeah I've I've been you know open about it. I wish I made better choices when I was younger so that maybe I wasn't in a position to be doing this for a living now and may, who knows what the future will hold yeah. but um, you know people 
who you work with at like a day job, it's you know they're talking about going on vacation. They're going away for a week to uh, on a cruise or going down to the you know going to the Outer Banks, and you're and it's like hard to even comprehend using time like that because to me it's like well that's time I really need to get some writing done yeah. or I need to do some research or or something like that because I don't you know I'm in a position where 40 hours a week is going to a job that has nothing to do with what I want to do so you have to kind of carve out this niche uh, for this this passion you have yeah then and you got to go home and do the dishes yeah <laughs> you know I, yeah. I mean all that shit adds up it's and then and then there's this thing that that you don't factor in, which is this like refractory period where, okay, we don't have much planned for Sunday. Oh yeah. Okay. I said, we go to our, you know, my parents for dinner. Oh, but I have to decompress after working for 40 hours. And then the last day off I had, I spent doing like housework stuff and I just need to cycle down for Mm -hmm. like four hours. And then all of a sudden it's the end of the day. Yeah. And then you start again, you know? Mm -hmm. There's no easy way. We say this a lot, man. If we were just born too late. Mm, yeah, yeah. What That's all. Like, well, I, 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 if only we had been doing this, uh, what, what we were saying, like in the 70s or even into the early 80s. Yeah. With, with the Aldi outlets for films of our budget level from drive-ins and TV just starting up and VHS coming onto the market. I mean... It would be just a we'd be living totally different lives. Yeah, but this is what we have. I, uh, yeah. I got the, the greatest compliment. I, I mean, it, it was so good. We were at Buffalo Dreams, uh, fantastic film fest a few weeks ago in uh, in Buffalo, New York, and so we do the the Q and A, and the guy and one of the guys who who runs a festival, a, a guy named Greg Lamberson, yeah. um, director of he, Slime City for all you horror movie fans. Great dude, the greatest dude. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he was out there, uh, he, he brings us up and stuff and he tells us a story about how he used to work at the Angelica in the city, which is like, you know, for anybody, if anybody's listening to this podcast and doesn't know what the Angelica is, then how, why were you listening? Why are you listening to this? So he said, um, he said like, you know, I realized when I watched your movie the second time why I liked it so much. And it was because this would have been a movie that played at the Angelica when I worked there in the nineties. Oh, wow. And I was like, "Holy shit! This is this is exactly that's the greatest compliment." Like he 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 told us we had a real independent film, mm-hmm. and that's like that's all I want to that's all I ever wanted to make, you know. Mm-hmm. That's all. Yeah, I don't know why that. Why, how the hell did I end up in that tirade? <laughs> I don't know. Whatever. Oh, born too late. So right. So uh, yeah, I just think it's it's a, we live in a different world now. But what are you gonna do? This is it. This is the world we live in. This is what we're doing. And. Uh, our choices are not to. I came across, I've been like trying to delete all this shit from my Google Drive because I'm like a data hoarder. And I found this 40 page journal about uh, when I was making the other one. And it does, it, and it's 40 pages. That's just like basically like pre production. And, and uh, I, I keep finding this sentence because I'm like skimming through it. I'm like, oh my God, I remember this shit show. I remember freaking out here. I remember this. But I keep saying, like, you know, when given the choice between making a movie or not making a movie, make a movie, right? Mm-hmm. And I just keep, and that's, I think that's it. That's just what we're, that's what we do, right? Mm-hmm. We just, we make the movie. It's the, uh, you have to choose between the frustration of making films while working a full-time job or not making them while working a full-time job. And it's just, you have to pick the lesser. Uh, yeah, which is a whole different frustration, right? Because then yeah. it's, because then it's just, then you're choosing inaction, which it's is kind of like you're giving worst. up. 
Exactly. Right. It's, exactly. it's like because I it's to me it's like then I'm just accepting that, you know, that that's it that there isn't going to be any of that and 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 it's we've talked about this too. It's like just how especially when you're filming in production. I mean, all parts of film have their have their ups and downs, but when you're in production, it just feels so rewarding, and it feels so. It's like tireless. Like you can shoot. I mean, I. Yeah, you were a machine. I mean, 40, you were 50, 60 hours a week, and it's just you were asleep. You. Yeah, you were like. I mean, by the end of last Frankenstein, you were like a like quite literally asleep on your feet in some places. <laughs> there hot. was a there was a vacancy <laughs> behind your eyes that I had never seen before. You just weren't there, but but. The best part about that is, it. well, right. That's it. The best part about that is, is your body was no longer reacting to the stimuli around it, <laughs> but your brain was still going. You mm-hmm. still couldn't give up, even though your body was begging for death. The red, like your, you were like a deer that got hit by a car, and you're still charging into the woods, <laughs> not understanding that it's like its organs are imploding. You know, you're just, you're. It's uh, over, bro. It, you just. <laughs> Game over, man. You were, uh, yeah, you were, but but yeah, that's it. Totally. That, that's also a film that almost killed you, to be fair. <laughs> it did almost. I thought it had killed me for a moment. Yeah, my face stopped working for I got the call on Monday. We were shoot, was, that, was it the second weekend of shooting Last Frankenstein? Bro, I, it was I a Monday. It. I remember it was a Monday. I think it was the day we shot the motorcycle stuff with the hitchhiker it played by Charity Buckley. It was. It was that day. And you called me or like... My face is frozen. <laughs> yeah. I, wo- I, yeah, I woke up. No. Okay. I took the kid, I took my daughter um, and my niece to a, th- a water park, and it was like 100 degrees. So freaking hot. And, and so we spent the day there, and uh, we went to dinner afterwards. And I remember getting like a margarita and like on the rocks. And I take the first sip, and I look up at my girlfriend, and I go, this tastes like nickels. And she's like, what? I'm like, like a handful of nickels. This tastes like change. <laughs> take a sip. She sips it. She's like, that tastes like a margarita. And I'm like, mm, I take a sip again, and it doesn't taste like nickels. And I thought, well, that was weird. Cut to three hours later, you you were shooting at the mall. It was a night shoot. Or a, like, yeah, it was like a night shoot or late late evening into night shoot. So I came home from the from the park. I dropped them off at the house. And I was coming to the mall to meet up with you guys. And before I left, um, I think it was, no, it wasn't the mall. I forgot where we were, whatever. It was a night shoot and I was coming to the night shoot. So I dropped them off and I'm standing there looking at her and I remember standing in the kitchen underneath this like, you know, uh, ceiling fan. I was a top lit for those DPs in the house. And uh, (laughs) I'm looking at her and she goes, what's wrong with your eye? I said, what? And she's like, it's not blinking. And I said, I don't know. I'm exhausted. And maybe that I just must be like weird, like shorting out, whatever. Nope. Right there, I should have been like, I should probably go see somebody about this. That next, was a red flag. It was a red flag. The next day, I had no idea what was going on. I get in the car to take my daughter to school. I turn on the air conditioning. All of a sudden, I can't see. I'm, bl- I'm literally blind. I don't know what's happening. It, well, it turns out that my eye wasn't blinking, and the air conditioning was hitting my eye, which was causing it to water, which was completely <laughs> screwing up my death perception. I had no idea what was happening, so I do what every rational adult does. I, I I muscle through it, take her to school, go upstairs, and go to bed because I think, like, I'm dying. So I <laughs> go like to sleep. Dog, yes. Like an old dog. I go under the, the porch like a cat. I go, I go <laughs> hide under the porch and die. 
Um, I wake up, it's not better, and I think I'm having a stroke. So I end up going to the ER, and uh, yeah. And I found out that uh, I did not have a stroke. He did a CAT scan. I had Bell's palsy. <laughs> so he was like, are you stressed out? And I said, I am stressed <laughs> out. And he's like, could be stress. Could be a virus. Could be stress. And I was like, that's fantastic. So I don't blame you. <laughs> and then uh, you did come back to set after about... Uh, yeah. was it like a week 10 shame. days yeah i came I, back I, to, to the we were in the woods shooting one of the I, many days in the woods uh, and you showed up with your with your uh, joe cool sunglasses on because oh, yeah because i couldn't blink my eye <laughs> it was bad man i was like uh, i was like I, I was like orson wells i was <laughs> dude i had i was sitting in my backyard for like a week just staring at birds in my underwear <laughs> They were in your underwear. Uh, they I were in my underwear. <laughs> I was like, I was like Michael Corleone at the end of, like, you know, <laughs> yeah. Godfather Three. I'm just standing there. Sounds just like, like Brando at the end of One, where he's uh, got the orange. Or, yeah, <laughs> but he was active. He was running around. I just like fell out of a chair. Like I was just like sitting there all alone in this big lonely wide shot. Like, and this is how it ended for him. Just stare. Just so sad. Yeah, but I came back. Electroshock therapy, and like uh, it, it fixed itself. So. And he is all good now, folks. I'm all good. Both sides work for now. Who the hell knows? Hey, do you want? We got three minutes. You want to? No, let's take it to the limit, baby. Okay, let's keep going. Let's yeah. do it. Yeah, let's. When it cuts off, we'll just do the thing. All right, that's all right. All right. Hilo Films hasn't come. paid for a Zoom Pro a Zoom Pro account. <laughs> I think it's important that your listeners know so they donate to the Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> um, so last Frankenstein, you were. It was the first time you were producing a film that yeah. you didn't direct. Yeah. Like you obviously were basically, a, a, you know, done producing on your own movies. But can you talk about what that was like, and just the the being f- solely focused on the producerial role, but also, you know, by virtue of it having so many practical effects and having so much to do with these full blown creatures and flashbacks set in like the seventies and. Having to pull actors from all literally all across the country and Bob Dix coming in and, and Jim Bolson, it just by virtue of all that it was a, it was a more um, more complicated shoot you might say than what you had directed in the past. Can you talk about what that was like working as just as a producer on a film and then walking into a film that was just a different a different type of production by just by its complexity and challenges. Well, I've said this before. I'll say it again. You're very kind with the title of producer because I feel like I, if nothing more, I was just a soundboard for you for a while. You did absolutely all the heavy lifting on this movie, and Stop. if That's anything, right. I was just there to 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 chat with. Um, but I think that in pre-production, I think it was, I think it was a big sh- culture shock for me because the things that I I I made to that point and the things that I continue to make are very low uh, effects affairs. Um, it's a lot of talking. It's a lot of two people in a room and over shoulder and you shoot the master and you shoot the OS and then you shoot some, 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 uh, some coverage. You know what I mean? Like it, it, not anything that you would propose with the script for The Last Frankenstein. So I think it was exciting and it was daunting and I had no idea how we were going to do what we were going to do. But I think that having the backbone of being two guys who had gone through it together in the past, I, I felt like either way I knew it was going to happen. It was just a question of how well it was going to happen. Um, having those actors travel in from out of state with with uh, with uh, Bobby Dix and and Jim, um, 
I think that that was challenging and that you were very attached to that idea and I had to come from it from like a, a business standpoint of right. like, hey, I, I, th- these guys are very talented actors and uh, and I can understand why you want them in the film. I They need to be able to draw, they need to be able to pay for what's happening. So, right. and I think that that's not a problem, you know, but mm-hmm. it, it was just such a foreign thing for me to, to say like, oh, we're bringing people in because I'd been using people that I had met in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the definition of plate spinning. I'll say that. <laughs> I will absolutely say that. It was, there's a lot of plates in the air and not a lot of time. And, uh, but it was, it was interesting to watch you work and your Spock like mentality of, of breaking things down to their very logical and workable pieces. And I think that that's something I took with me as well. It's something I learned from you is just, you know, just break, break it down, remove the emotion and let's look at this logically. We are, we are, uh, we are even low budget, no budget when it comes to podcasting. <laughs> Can you believe six dollars a month isn't in the budget for this thing? No, it's up to sixteen now. Is it really? Oh my yeah. god! Yeah, for those listening, uh, we are recording this over Zoom. You get thirty minutes free, after which you get the boot, and then you have to wait ten minutes before you can do another Zoom from your account. So we just hopped over to Jay's account. Yeah. Because we ain't paying that $16. No, nah, damn the man. Thanks for your free <laughs> tool, Zoom. Sucker ass. Sucker ass, Zoom. Uh, so when, when last we talked, <laughs> you were talking uh, about, um, yeah, just, just, I don't know if you want to just kind of summarize again what you were saying about uh, Last Frankenstein and just what you took away from that as a producer. Uh, yeah, I just, I mean, I, I, I took away that it's okay to think a little bit bigger um, and that, I think that uh, things that I considered ambitious at the time, which was a nice way to say insane or impossible, (laughs) uh, happened. And it just kind of solidified this idea of like, hey, we can do this. Mm -hmm. Everybody can, you can do this if you want to do this. And kind of like being driven by the passion to do it. And uh, I think that was, that was, that was the thing that I took. That was the most I took of it was, um, you know, and it was fun to work with you and it was fun to meet everybody. And I made f- friends on that film that I'd still Scotty. have to this day. Yeah. Scotty. Yeah. Scott Clementson. Yeah. So yeah, it was a great, it was, it was, it was great. It was long. Yes. Um, yeah. and I think post-production of Frankenstein was, was even, a a, a, a better, it was it was uh, a place where I think I did a little bit better in a producerial capacity, just because I, I guess the pandemic came and you didn't. The pandemic came and it gave me time mm. to be able to dedicate to f- helping you shepherd this thing through its last stage stages, and I don't think that that I think that it would have happened regardless because you were kind of at a point where you were just like, hey, this is happening either way. It's just going to take a longer time or you're going to help me. <laughs> so that's what happened. Um, yeah. So, you know, dedication and, and, and shit like that was inspiring to watch. And it was cool, man. Like we got to do some really cool stuff and we ended up with a really cool movie and, and it's really cool. It's a really cool credit on my IMDb, you yeah. know, that was something that we did and it's, it's totally out of my wheelhouse. I always say that COVID was the greatest thing that happened to my film. <laughs> <It was. laughs> yep. Yeah, absolutely. And I can't thank you enough. I know you don't want to hear it, but thank you so much for, cool yeah, because I, I feel like we still would be working on coloring it and all that fun stuff. 
in the uh, wonderful post. Uh, dude, it just sharpened you up for the next one. That's all. I mean, you just you just learned all the lessons. You just went to film school, you know? Mm-hmm. So Again. Talk, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> one more <laughs> time. <laughs> so talk about, uh, I guess, Break Glass now, which is your the film you have out now. Yes, sir. Making its way around the country and hopefully the world. Yeah. Um, Give us, I guess, starting out, just tell us about what the, the plot line of the film is, Jay. It's about a What's the plot line? <laughs> and it's TV Guide. You open up the TV Guide. Yep. On, uh, on uh, WSBK TV 38 out of Boston. Area all right. Break glass. It would say break glass parentheses 2023. Uh, <laughs> young boy makes friends with mad scientist who creates time machine out of DeLorean. <laughs> Ronald Reagan? Uh, the, actor? the actor? Uh <laughs> Uh, a guy, uh, 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 Ricky DeRosa's character um, moves home six days before his ex-wife's marriage, new marriage, um, uh, where he's waiting out the rest of his life. He's going to kill himself uh, the day after she's married. Uh, his brother, played by Jeff Riano, comes back to save his life by introducing him to some whack-ass uh, self-help cult. Uh, and the two go on a road trip together to kind of repair the mistakes of his past to, give, to gift himself his future, as it were. Um, where and that's pretty much the the plot line uh, at a thirty thousand foot view. And that's Jeffriano of the Last Frankenstein as well. Yes, the wonderful sir. Drug dealing paramedic Randolph Strock, and you also have in your cast Keely Randy? Sheridan, Keely Sheridan, Paula from the Last Frankenstein, and Jorge Luna, Patrolman Rivero from the Last Frankenstein, and Alex the Vagrant of Break Glass. Yes, yes, yes indeed. We are very incestual. We uh, we we uh, we have a very small talent pool who are incredibly <laughs> talented, and we abuse them accordingly. The level is high. The diameter is small. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Um, so your films that you shot previously had had multiple locations, and you know it's not like they were uh, you know chamber pieces. But this was an actual road movie, and you even shot a little bit out of state. How is that? Did that? How did you approach that? In a, new new challenge a new uh new part of the adventure well some would argue poorly <laughs> um, i actually uh, okay let's let's start off by saying how many shoot days for the 15 film? and how long is the script how many pages uh 123 pages something like that so there's nothing poorly about that my friend that is no that's volume baby <laughs> that's excellent. that is excellent okay thank you <laughs> so tell us tell us tell us your approach jay to the road movie the first road movie your filmography um you know we just tried not to spend money man uh we focused on we we focused on uh favors like we always do we focused (laughs) on performance uh we spent a long time we we benefited a little bit from covid too because we had nothing to do during pre-production so in the times in normal pre-production we were struggling to get people out of their jobs to meet for an hour here or there or meet up for a coffee or have some sort of semblance of organization that was all out the window. All of a sudden, we were in this brand new world of Zoom where everybody was mm-hmm. working from home. So we really benefited pre-production-wise. We were able to find the cast that, that made the most sense for us and that performed incredibly. I do to say this all the time, but like, talk about not punching your weight. I mean, they are so talented. Um, and, and we were able to work with them and talk all the time about character and talk about the story. And it gave me time to write more drafts and... Mm-hmm. And so that was like, yeah, so that was the, and the goal was to open it up, like you said, just have a little bit of scope and realizing what we could accomplish and how we could make it look a lot bigger than what it was. I mean, the movie takes place across New York State and into Massachusetts, and we basically
perfectly shot on about a four-mile stretch on one <laughs> rural roadway about seven miles from my house. Mm-hmm. And we just drove it up and down all day, you know, on the back of a flatbed uh, uh, uh what do you call it? A trailer. And, uh, oh, we had a road movie. <laughs> so, you know, um, that was it. I'd just like to also thank you for the challenge you provided me as an actor by casting me as a pair of headlights following, following the car. Dave, we, every time that scene comes on, Sean Barnes and I refer to you as the Mothman of <laughs> your road because it's like it's these, David had these these two uh, uh, flashlights. Yeah, two, yeah, two flashlights. We shot everything practically in the car. Um, we had a we had a, a, a friend who hooked us up with a, a giant trailer. We secured the car to the trailer. We had mounted two cameras to the car, and we had a hookup. Uh, uh, um, our, our friend Bob Derek, our our composer's uncle Bob, who is an incredible supporter and who also played a role in the film, drove towed the the trailer. So. We shot all of that stuff practically. We did not want to shoot the night scene like that, the night driving scene like that, because it was very short, and it just it just put way too many variables in. So, right. So we we sort of faked that out at David's house, and uh, I showed up with a two by four, and two flashlights, and a roll of duct tape. And I was like, all right, man, I'm gonna shake the car, and you just stand behind him and <laughs> move around a little bit. And so. That's he is the Mothman of of his road, um, and I chew. and I laugh every time I see it. Yeah, <laughs> so thank you for that. <laughs> uh, you kind of referenced it a lot there, but yeah, just uh, do you want to talk a little bit about how, especially with no budget filmmaking, how crucial the support of the community is? Because I mean, I mean, Lars Frankenstein and your films had the same experience. I know we just had incredible support from local business owners and residents opening up their houses and their their uh, places of work to us and just how crucial that is when you have no budget and uh, not much of a framework for filmmaking. In all these movies, um, I've only gotten a no, I think like two times. And one Mm. of them was by a college that I attended. Uh, Mm. Mostly you, you get one of two answers. Uh, You get, Oh my God, I'm so excited to help. Or are you making a porno? Uh, (laughs) And then they hang up. So in really, that's it. Everybody, everybody was so excited to help. Um, everybody was happy to help. Everybody did all this legwork. I mean, we went down to this little town in, in upstate New York, Middleburg, and you know, we had talked to the mayor of the city of the town and just said, hey, listen, we want to come over and take over your town, basically. Like, we want the town to be the backdrop of the film, so we want to shoot at this church. We want to shoot at this diner. We want to shoot at this... Like, we, we had all this whole list. We want to be on the streets. We want to be at this liquor store. We had all these things we wanted to do, and she could not have been more helpful. Mm-hmm. It, she was putting us in touch with people. She was, you know, CCing us on emails and making requests. She showed up to the premiere. She donated to our fundraiser for oh, wow. festival submissions. Like I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. it's just shout out to Trish Bergen. I, th- that is, that's the like that's the level of support you get. We we don't ask for money to make the film. We showed the film and we and after the film was over or before the film, we addressed the the crowd we had and said it was which was you know maybe 125 people, 150 people, and we said, hey, we made this movie for nothing. Um, we are we are trying to come up with some money for film festival entries. So if you want to donate, please donate. Um, and if not, thanks for coming. Uh, we're just happy that you were here. We got enough money to to, to enter 50 festivals wow. from. 
those people. And then a couple of weeks ago, uh, we decided that we could not afford to go to Los Angeles for the Hollywood Festival. Um, and we just we put an Indiegogo out, and I and I was hesitant to do it because I do not like asking for things. I like providing things. You know what I mean? Like we made this movie, come and party with us. We put it out, and it was funded in two days. That's uh, awesome. It's just like the level of support is ridiculous, and people say the kindest things, and it's you got to remember that shit when you're sitting at your desk staring into you know your Adobe Premiere timeline for the fifty third consecutive night knowing that you have eight months of work in front of you and it's snowing outside and your fingers are cold and you're alone. You know, you have to remember that there's people in this community that will support you to make the next one and support the one you made. Mm -hmm. It's great. They're the best. You know, what's interesting too. Like I, my day job is working for a multi-billion dollar company that will remain nameless, but that, uh, right. You know, has all the money in the world and, uh, is very grudg- begrudgingly provides even basic creature comforts to its employees. Yeah. And um, on the flip side of that is you have people who have no obligation to you, but who go out of their way to help you make a movie that's not going to really probably make any money or have any names in it of, of recognition, but they just believe in your, your project. And I yeah. know, it's just an interesting contrast of... Yeah, because those, that's that's one human helping another human. Whereas yeah. in your situation, it's several hundred thousand humans doing the bare minimum, you know, cognitive dissonance. It's like mm-hmm. you're not a person anymore. You're a badge number. Yeah, yeah. 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 So uh, I think the upside, the, the downside of living in this area is that there's not a community of, of uh, there's not an infrastructure built for filmmakers. So like I said, you can't rent a C-stand. Uh, there's not a picture car available. There's not investors uh, at a, a high level that are going to, you know, come to your screenings and be like, I like you, kid. I like what you're working on and cut you, you know, a big check. But the positive, the pros of living in this area are, are all those same things. I mean, it's, it's just in how you look at it. It's, there are people that live here that want to help you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you won't pay for um, locations generally. You won't. You can ask favors. I mean, dude, we shot in some places in Last Frankenstein that are ridiculous. Oh you yeah, know? yeah. Uh, and location fees, like no, no. Mm-hmm. It's so I, I, it's great. The community is great, and and it started with me shooting in two thousand and five and having some guy like huck a beer bottle at me, yeah. <laughs> and it's come a long way. I'll say that. Mm-hmm. And and the thing too is, it's not like um, when they do these favors for us. It's not like uh, that. Oh, thank God we saved a little money. No, oh, no, it just wouldn't have happened otherwise. Like we, no, we it really wouldn't have happened. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not it's, hyperbole when I tell people this couldn't happen without you. I, yeah. I, I that's not hyperbole and it's not flowery praise it's it's a very literal statement this could not death for discomfort couldn't happen if michael michael's diner didn't give us their diner 
as many times as we shot it. The other one couldn't have happened if, you know, Sam and Bryce didn't give us their apartment and Shorty's Southside Tavern didn't let us shoot there all day and night with their doors locked. Mm-hmm. Middletown doesn't happen unless, you know, Coroga Lake is cool and gives us Sherman's and and the, the, the folks that own uh, uh, the bar don't let us in there and shoot for a day during football season. Mm-hmm. And Jeff doesn't give up his house for the duration of the shoot. Like, these things don't happen without the kindness of human beings, right? Mm-hmm. And it's and at the end of the day, it's just to service my dopey little movies and, and our dopey little dreams and, you know, full of, like, bad words and pee-pee jokes and stuff. <laughs> but it just, it's just bigger than the sum of all parts. I know that sounds pretentious as hell and shit, but it means a lot to – it means an awful lot to so many people who are involved in it when people step up and just do that stuff. It's, like, inspiring, you know? Where is Break Glass now? Uh, toss it. Where is it in the festivals? Yep. And uh, won some awards. Talk about that, Jay. Yes. Uh, we have been... So ten, ten, our festival count now is 10 um, oh, nice. with this film. Um, most recently, we were at... Uh, well, we were at Buffalo Dreams a few weeks ago where we won audience choice. Um, we did really well in, uh, at the Jersey Shore Film Festival. Like, yeah. we, we kind of... We kind of swept that. Yeah, we had best narrative feature, best uh, best actor, best actress, best supporting actor, best director. Screenplay, right? Oh, no, director, director. director. Um, and uh, yeah, so I think we took five there. Uh, New York Cinefest, we we were in. That was our first festival of the season. And R- Ricky DeRosa won best actor. Susanna Bourne was nominated for best supporting actor. Or I'm sorry, best female actor. Um and uh, yeah, and so now we're heading out to North Hollywood Film Festival at the end of September in just a few weeks. Sean Barnes, producer Sean Barnes and Ricky DeRosa, our, our lead, are heading out there for a few days to hang out and uh, take in that festival. And at the same time, uh, we'll be appearing across the country in Keene, New Hampshire at Monif, where I will be, I think on Saturday or Friday, September 29th, whatever day that is, um, and it's a Friday. Yeah. It's a Friday, yeah. So uh, that'll be happening, and then we'll be at Catskill International Film Festival at some point during the week of October 20th. Um, so, yeah, and, and, you know, hopefully we've got a couple more festivals in us. We've got, I think we're waiting to hear back from maybe 10, uh, but that should wrap up at the very beginning of the new year. Um, mm-hmm. And then we're going to, for Wallet, we're going to take it out to some theaters uh, that are within a drive for us to start just because of, you know, everyone's commitment and the balancing act we talked about earlier. Uh, so we're, so we're going to, um, we're going to do that and take it out into theaters and stuff. And then we're going to, uh, hopefully get some distribution, uh, even if it's from us. I mean, we're, we have a couple of emails out right now. Um, we're starting to, to start taking the querying seriously um, and, and reaching out to some sales agents and distributors just to give them an idea of what we're doing out here for nothing. Uh, so, you know, everybody, you know, we'll keep everybody updated. You can check it out on uh, breakclassmovie.com um, and our socials are there too. Uh, we post occasionally, uh, Instagram, Facebook, and things like that. And Middletown is also that did get some uh, digital distribution, so that's available to watch. Uh, yeah, YouTube, correct? Uh, yeah, Middletown got picked up by Indie Rights. Uh, we are on Amazon Prime. We are on Tubi. Uh, we are on the Roku channel. Um, we are on YouTube. Um, we are on Pluto, maybe. 
Nice. Uh, a couple other ones. Yeah. So you can find it. Um, it's out there and it's free. So <laughs> check it out if you want to. What's the um, current outlook on the next script? How's that shaping up? And uh, you know, any thoughts as to when that will happen? Yeah, I'm like maybe I, I told I was talking to Justin and Susanna and uh, Sean last night, and I, I just I told them just give me two more weeks to build up my own self hatred enough to give this to you <laughs> out of spite to myself. Uh, that's generally my process. I, I, I you've seen it happen. Uh, I get to the point where I just I have to make a move. I have to push it forward. Mm-hmm. So then I begrudgingly hand a script out and you know, with a lot of disclaimers ahead of it, you know, this is a draft, not the draft. And <laughs> I don't know where it's going to go. I'm definitely going to change all the names and I'm not sure about the third act and all that shit, but, uh, that's just part of it. Um, so I'm probably a couple weeks away from handing that out and, and then, you know, it's off to the races. I'm going to see who's going to be available from our current team to be on it. Um, I, I'm hoping everybody comes back, but you never know. It's a big commitment and I don't like to assume it's going to happen. Um, and, uh, and then hopefully, you know, the movie is written to be a spring summer movie, but, but I'm not necessarily keen on the idea of waiting nearly a year to do that. So we might, you know, if we're lucky and we get all the things in, in place, it it could be a situation where we shoot all the interiors in the tail end of the winter. And Mm -hmm. as soon as it's not, um, a tundra anymore outside, then we, uh, we head out and finish her up. Nice, I nice. don't. I don't know. I want to know when I'm giving my copy of the script. That's you, all. You will get it before anybody else does. Oh shucks! You heard it here, folks. You heard it. So, uh, as we discussed in uh, the beta, the beta testing of this interview uh, <laughs> a couple of days ago, uh, one of the thing I kind of like to wrap up with would be just t- tell me about the last movie you watched, Jay. Yeah, the well, last that- movie you sat through. That answer is different now than it was last oh, time. Oh, yeah, because what was the last time it was? Tombstone. Last time it was Tombstone. Right. And this time it is... Would you watch? Would you watch? Oh, all right. So I'm going to... I'm not I'm not, a, I'm not a very concise person, so I'm going to give you the story here. I, I, I watched the same few movies and listened to the same sort of music and read the same books in a pattern... When mm-hmm. I am like writing shit, it's or going into production on something, it's like I I fall back to the same little chunk of movies because yeah. they inspire yeah. me to move forward. So I realized where I am in my process because uh, yesterday, no, two days ago, I watched uh, American Movie for about the five hundred and sixty first time. Mm-hmm. But uh, I love it so much; it's mm-hmm. just my favorite documentary. So. Uh, yeah, I watched that, and I got my Inspirato on, and uh, that's great. If you haven't seen it, then I, then what are you doing? Just go go see I, it. I haven't seen it, yeah. Mark Borchardt does some acting, Jay, and I'm just going to leave it at that. I emailed Mark Borchardt. Mm-hmm. I bought, okay. a, I bought a, a copy of Coven on VHS. I thought it was Coven. Uh, Coven. <laughs> Coven. I mean, with the umlaut. Uh, what man? So I bought a copy of Coven. Uh, very occasionally he'll post on his Twitter that, uh, you know, some copies are available, VHS copies, and he signs them. So I bought one. And you have to email his, like, that he gives this email address out, and it's like for his assistant or whatever. So I emailed the assistant and I asked for the thing, and he responds, he responds. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, 
holy shit, it's Mark Borchardt's email address. So I go back to him and I'm like, hey, man, it, uh, it, I would be remiss of my position in this uh, filmmaking lifestyle if I didn't tell you that. And I you know, write this very long, flowery email about how he inspires me. I've been watching that movie for 25 or 20 years or however long it's been, 99. And uh, you know, I'm doing this thing and blah, 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 blah. And we kind of start this dialogue where it's like, can I get Mark Borchardt to come and be in my movie? And it kind of seemed like that was a possibility, but honestly, we just didn't have a part for him in Break Glass. Mm-hmm. But who knows? Maybe we can uh, maybe we can get the old boy up for uh, for the next one. Mm-hmm. I would, I, would, I encourage you on that <laughs> without sacrificing your craft, of course. Of course, of yeah. course. Well, it's all right. It's okay. <laughs> Something to live for. Well, thank you, Jay, for uh, doing this interview twice now. Yeah, David. If you needed me to do it a third time, I'm happy to do it. I just like to talk to you, man. Well, it's these audio files, and uh, maybe who knows? Who knows? knows? I have faith in your technical prowess, Dave. And uh, thanks for having me on, dude. And really, uh, we talk about balance, and I know that you're working on a script for people who are listening to this. And this is something you may cut, but David is working on a script, and also working a full-time job that is intense um, and still taking the time to put out a podcast uh, for, for the love of the art, for the, for the production company, for, uh, you know, for love of the game, as the kids say, and just, you know, like, (laughs) like, did you see his idiot wife was like, I guess I'm going to have to rejoin the workforce. (laughs) Shut up. Jesus, because you want 150 grand a month to raise your kids, you moron. <laughs> anyway, uh, I just just like I tell like I tell these guys that like run these festivals that I communicate with, um, and I mean this sincerely. I thank them for everything that they do for the for the filmmaking culture and stuff like that. And to you, thanks, man, because it's it means a lot. There's somebody listening to this that you know maybe didn't want to hear me, but definitely uh, enjoys what you do, and it, you know it's it's big. Oh, shucks, sir. Don't shucks me, you son of Thank a you. bitch. No, I appreciate it. I do. And I should also note uh, that um, Jay's production company is Trench Mouth Productions. And hey, th- now, do you have a, I know you have a website for the films, Break Glass and Middle Time. Do you have a website for the, for the actual company? Like Trenchmouthproductions.com. Feature right, films at soup kitchen prices. Ooh, sexy. sexy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, All right, man. brother. Thank you very much. And, uh, I'll talk to you in about 60 seconds after I stop this recording. Hey, Car- <laughs> wait, 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 wait. We can't lose this. We can't lose this to uh, the first episode. What's the sign-off? What's oh, the Kirk Douglas I, I, sign-off? KDFL, bruh. Kirk Douglas for life. <laughs> KDFL. I am Spartacus. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Thanks a lot. <laughs>